Good morning, historians from around the internet. Welcome back to the Old History Podcast. Where, as I've said a million times by now, the goal is to just talk about history. Maybe make somebody learn something somewhere. That's the goal for the podcast. Talk about things that might not, you know, make it into a video. You know, this is easier for me to do than make a video. I can record it any time in my spare time. So, well, there you have it. And so far we've covered lots of really good facts about early American history, you know, from the 1760s on up. So we started with, you know, in the 1760s and the, with the Royal Proc with the proclamation of eight, uh, 1763 and we went to the revolution and now we're just discussing the politics. So I've said it. I've said it before. Uh, just I don't want to bring old history into politics. Uh, don't want to talk about it. It's this is history. This is education. You know, I'm not a personally. I get into politics, but I don't want to bring it to old history. You know, you need a break from that stuff. With that being said, I want you guys to just uh, observe the situation in the in Ukraine right now because. One day we're going to be able to talk about that and be like, hey, this is how this impacted us directly. Whatever the cause may be, you know, just write it down. This, this is, it's a bad way to say it, and I apologize, but it, this is history in the making. So with that out of the way, there are no, no real updates for old history. I'm taking a break from the YouTube channel because I've been putting out, a, putting out videos more than I have. And I don't want to burn myself out. So, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. All kinds of videos to make. Over all kinds of stuff. I might make, the next one I might make, a, I might conglomerate all the pictures of Rogersville. Make like a old history of Rogersville or old pictures of Rogersville video. Like the, like the Morristown one. But anyway, uh, as always, you can subscribe to the podcast for... I think the I think it's ninety nine cents a month. You don't have to. It's not required to listen. Knowledge is free. Uh, oh yeah, and go visit my good friend Jason at the Beard Guy and Friends for all your beardly needs. Let's get into the podcast. So it looks like I'm getting an increase in my German audience. So that's awesome to hear. Uh dish to my German friends who are listening. I know just a little bit of German. Alright, so, let's see, let's go back here. Alright, so the last podcast we made was, we talked about some of the issues with the natives that we were having, and we were talking about the Bill of Rights, and how, you know, it's basically the first ten amendments in the Constitution. So, what we're going to do today, we're going to talk about is, we're going to delve into, a, you know, the more political side of the is of the issues and conflicts with the native tribes, like some of the treaties, we'll go into some of the treaties that happened at least in Tennessee. There were, there were treaties made everywhere, and most of them were broken. So we'll talk we'll talk about those, and then we're going to get into how the political parties formed. You, you know, you got the Whig, you had the Whigs, and the Democratic Republicans, and so on and so forth, we'll, but we'll get into those a little bit later. So we're going to back up here. Um, I'm going to name the sources. One of them is NativeHeritageProject.com, uh, who's 
and the author is Roberta Estes. This was this article was posted in 2013, so credit to her. This is an amazing read. So we're going to back up here, just because European settlers had been making uh, treaties uh, since the seven since. I think actually the 1760s here. Hold up. Alright, sorry about that. I read too far ahead. Alright, so the first treaty actually preceded 1770 by a couple of years. The proclamation of 1763 would reserve all of Tennessee for uh, the natives. Which it did, you know. Uh, everything west of the Appalachian Mountains was considered uh, quote-unquote Indian territory. But, you know, as is a repeating fashion in history, uh, most of the treaties would come to be broken. So, in 1770, you know, the proclamation of 1763 was broken. You know, land, basically, the settlers just came in like, hey, this is ours. One of the first treaties in Tennessee... Uh, after that was the Treaty of Lochvar and you had the Treaty of Sycamore Shoals and the Treaty of the Long Island of Holston and just and there this is a real good read um, the Treaty of New Echota and that was actually the last one you know Calhoun Treaty and so a lot of these at least a majority of them actually happened when the Watauga Association, or the Washington District, uh, whatever you want to call it, state of Frank, the whole straight, uh, state of Franklin era uh, part of Tennessee was going into swing. Some of these happened during then because Jackson was, well, he was desperate to stop the attacks on the various stations around, uh, around East Tennessee, around the state, or, well, pardon my French, the state of Franklin, because North Carolina was fighting war. Well, they had just fought a war, and they really didn't have the means to help anybody. Well, when he reached out to Virginia, they basically told him no, too. So he really, he really didn't have anything to do, and he was trying to make treaties with the, in, with the natives. Uh, he was, he honestly tried, but it didn't really work out, because they raided, they kept on raiding a lot of these places anyway, a lot of these treaties kept on getting broken and we're going to dive into a few of these a little bit further just just a few of the more important ones one of the first ones we can talk about would be you know the first one in 1770 would be the treaty of Lochabar Lochabar I don't know how to say that and this article comes to us from Fred Rolotter from the Tennessee Encyclopedia lots of good articles on there so we talked about the tr the we already talked about the proclamation of 1763 and how it restricted settlement uh, across the Appalachians well in 1770 British Southern Indian Superintendent John Stewart made the Treaty of Lochbar with the Cherokee that ceded land north and east of line running along the 36 degree 30 minute line to Long Island on the Holston River, which today that's around, that's right in Kingsport, and then northward to the 
Kanawha River in western Virginia. And though the line was technically the North Carolina-Virginia boundary, it would actually include a small portion of what is now Johnson and Sullivan counties. 1771, when John Donaldson and Alexander Cameron both surveyed the line with Cherokee assistance, the Cherokees took pity on the settlers living north of the south, north of the south fork of the Holston. That's a that's a tongue twister. And then they agreed to the little carpenter a modification of the Lockbar line, allowing the area north of the Holston to be considered territory for legal settlement, and thus Sullivan County was part of a Virginia until 1779 and was considered a legal uh, settlement area. So, and then these go on up until, in t at least in Tennessee, into the 18, uh, the late 1810s, like 1819 was one of the last ones that happened here. That's when they started to get pushed out. So we can also talk about the Treaty of Sycamore Shoals, which is actually the very next paragraph here. There, there These were just as numerous as there are trees in the forest that you know, just so to speak, that's a that's not accurate, but basically it's what it is. It was the Treaty of Sycamore Shoals would be negotiated between Judge Richard Henderson of North Carolina and the Cherokee, led by Little Carpenter, uh, during March seventeen seventy five, at Sycamore Shoals, which is now around Elizabethton, Tennessee, on the Watauga, Watauga River. Judge Richard Henderson is a very, very important figure in the early history of this area and, and he honestly deserves his own podcast his own episode uh, i think i'll make one of those pretty soon but, but he appears in a bunch of other stuff too a bunch of the uh, frontier expeditions into tennessee he, he appears there and it's really cool so anyway this private treaty was illegal under both british and later american law it was one of the most influential in tennessee history the treaty transferred the area between the ohio river and the headwaters of the streams flowing into the Kentucky and Cumberland Rivers, Central Kentucky and North Central Tennessee, uh, to Transylvania Land Company for 10,000 British pounds of trading goods. Little Carpenter's son, dragging, dragging Canoe, refused to recognize the sale and wound up and vowed to turn Middle Tennessee into a dark and bloody ground, a promise he kept through his leadership that is Chickamauga. Henderson opened the Cumberland settlements as a result of this treaty, and the supplementary Watauga and Brown purchases also made at the 1775 Sycamore Shoals negotiations, transferred ownership of, of lease rights to Watauga and Nolichucky white settlers. And so then we're getting into more Tennessee history, and we'll, we'll cover that in another topic, because to understand a lot of the early politics of America, you, you know, you really have to look at this from about five different sides you have to look at the native american side and then the settler side all of these all of what happened back then plays a part into how things are ran today and it's important to learn this and so there's there's so much we can talk about so we're going to take us a real quick break here and uh, we'll start it getting into the uh, transition of parties All right, so again, here's the, the one of these articles comes from uh, U.S. History, and then you got NCpedia, and then you have well, I don't know what that one is. 
This is American history from the Revolution to Reconstruction and beyond. I believe this is uh, something that teachers use. But it still has all kinds of good information on it with sources. Everybody loves sources. So, alright, so the, the French Revolution and the emergence of this strange two-party system and then threats of war with France and England and then the first transfer of presidential power. George Washington would call this debauched and worse, the clampdown of the personal freedoms. This would be basically politics in 1790s America. Welcome to it. The extraordinary conflict that divided American life in the 1790s basically centered on divergent understandings of the meaning of the American Revolution and how its legacy should be basically remembered in the new nation and up upheld. Arguments about that fundamental question would have been controversial under any other circumstances, but they were dramatically heightened by the explosive example of the French Revolution. The United States was basically a science experiment in terms of government and politics of that time. It had, at least to my knowledge, had never been done before. So its domestic events and attitudes will be great, greatly shaped by what happened in Europe. And the deep conflict of the 1790s stimulated profound new development in American politics. During the revolution, patriots had expected and even demanded that all virtuous people support them in a cause they saw as the only real force for the public good. And even into the 1790s, most Americans believed that there could only be one legitimate position to take on such political uh, issues. This helps to explain the rabid opinions of the period that were set before the public by a remarkable growth in newspapers during that decade. These newspapers did not pretend to be objective in how they reported events. Instead, they sold issues because of their intense commitment to their particular partisan view of the contentious events of that day. Consider these diametrically opposed opinions about President Washington, which is what a, a this is what a Federalist newspaper wrote. And I'll start quote: "Many a private person might make a great president." But will there ever be a president who will make so great a man as Washington? End quote. Meanwhile, a Democratic-Republican paper condemned that same hero. Start quote. If ever a nation was debauched by a man, the American nation has been debauched by Washington. Let the history of the federal government instruct mankind that the mask of patriotism may be worn to conceal the foulest designs against the liberties of people. And just remember that quote, because some of that might still be a play today. I just want you to just think about that for just a second. See how it applies today, because it's true. Anyway, as this newspaper suggests, most people believed that their political enemies would destroy the nation if allowed to hold power. Unfortunately, John Adams would be elected president in these very divided times. He was a genuine uh, patriot and a man of deep principle. Domestic and international controversies placed nearly impossible challenges before the second president. Even if, you know, Washington suffered harsh public attack from opposition newspapers, imagine what they were prepared to say about the less imposing John Adams. 
And so I'm getting, I'm making a point here. You got to talk about just what happened, you know, leading up to the creation of the parties here. By 1798, Adams and the Federal, the Federalist Congress passed a series of laws that basically limited uh, American civil liberties, acting upon their judgment that political critics were treasonous opponents of good government. Adams followed the lead of congressional leaders and heightened domestic repression. He supported policies that had subsequently been widely viewed as unconstitutional. Nevertheless, he was a moderating influence of his own party and refused to use the threat of war as a tool to exploit patriotic uh, fervor to his own advantage. The gulf that separates our political attitudes, attitudes from those of Adams and his Federalist colleagues in the late 1790s reveals that the fundamental transformation of American political thought during that decade. The election of 1796 was basically the first election in American history where political candidates at the local, state, and national level would begin to run for office as members of organized political parties that held strongly opposed political principles. This was basically brand new as most of the old leaders from the revolutionary era and even uh, James Madison, who was one of the earliest to see the value of these political parties, believed that they would only serve as temporary coalitions for specific controversial elections. And the older leaders than that failed to understand the dynamic new conditions that had been created by this popular sovereignty, which was be democracy, uh, to the American Revolution. People now understood themselves as a fundamental force in legitimating the government authority. In the modern American political system, voters mainly express themselves through allegiances with a competitive party system. 1796 was the first election where this basically began to appear. And so just to talk about what the first two parties were, because I don't think I mentioned them yet, you had the Federalist and the Jeffersonians. Okay, well, you've never heard Jeffersonians before. Okay, Republicans. Now you've heard of it. So just to dive into this a little bit further, um, the Federalists, they were, cons they were basically committed to a sound and nationalistic government. They favored... Uh, national band, tariffs, and good relations with Britain. And they supported implied powers, which were authorized by a legal document from the Constitution, which, while not stated, seemed to be implied by the powers expressly stated. They had conservative views, and they were composed of the elite class. And then you had the Jeffersonian Republicans. That's what they were called. They were committed to the rights of states, states' rights kind of people. The primacy of yeoman farmers and the principles of republicanism, which was liberty and inalienable rights. Opposed, they opposed the Jay Treaty and wanted good relations with France instead of Britain. And they opposed the ideas of a national bank or implied powers. And they were basically anti-administration. So basically, you know, they were small government. So the Republican Party would outlast the Federalist Party which had been seen by the people as too elitist. And Jefferson's party would come to be the foundation for both modern Republican and Democrat parties, although these current forms are both very, very different today. 
Alright, so we're going to get back to podcast here, or the main subject. In 1796, the election was waged with uncommon intensity. Federalists thought themselves as friends of the order and good government, and they viewed their opponents as dangerous radicals who would bring the anarchy of the French Revolution to America. And that's interesting. The Democratic Republicans, that's another name for the Jeffersonians, uh, despised their Federalist policies. And according to one Republican-minded New York newspaper, the Federalists were aristocrats, endeavoring to lay the foundations of monarchical government. And Republicans were the real supporters of independence and friends to equal rights and warm advocates of free elective government. And there was almost no room for compromise in this very hostile political environment. The outcome of the presidential election indicated the close balance between the new the new two sides. New England strongly favored Adams, while, Jeff, while Jefferson overwhelmingly carried the southern states. The key to the election lay in the mid-Atlantic colonies, where party organizations were the most fully developed. Adams ended up narrowly winning the Electoral College, 71 to 68, which was a sure sign of the great novelty of political parties. Was This was that the Constitution had established the runner-up in the presidential election would become the vice president. John Adams took office after a harsh campaign and a narrow victory, and his opponent, Jefferson served as second in command. And so we'll talk about just a little bit about the Jeffer, uh, the Democratic Republicans here. And so this is important to know here. We're talking, I smacked, a, smacked my microphone. Sorry about that. So this is important to know here, what I'm about to say. And this is the Democratic Republican Party which between 1792 and 1798 was the Republican Party. They are the first opposition political party in the United States, organized in 1792 as the Republican Party. Its members held power nationally between 1801 and 1825, and was the direct antecedent of the present Democratic Party. During the two administrations of President Washington, between 1789 and 1797, Many former anti-federalists who had resisted adoption of the new federal constitution in 1787 began to unite in opposition to the fiscal program of Alexander Hamilton, who was the Secretary of Treasury. After Hamilton and other proponents of a strong central government and a loose interpretation of the constitution formed the Federalist Party in 1791, those who favored states' rights and a strict interpretation of the constitution rallied under the leadership of Thomas Jefferson who had served as Washington's first Secretary of State. Secretary of State. Jefferson's supporters deeply influenced the ideals of the French Revolution. In 1789, they first adopted the name Republican to emphasize their anti-monarchical views. The Republicans contended that the Federalists harbored aristocratic attitudes and that their policies basically placed too much power in the central government and tended to benefit the affluent at the expense of the common man. Although the Federalists soon branded Jefferson's followers Democratic Republicans, attempting to link them with the ex excess of the French Revolution, the Republicans officially adopted the derisive label in 1798. The Republican coalition would, su 
They, they basically supported France in the European War that broke out in 1792, while the Federalists supported Britain. And this is the French Revolution and Napoleonic Wars going on into something completely different. It's a completely another track. The Republicans' opposition to Britain unified the faction throughout the 1790s and, and inspired them to fight against the Federalist-sponsored Jay Treaty of 1794 and the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798. And so we've got to talk about the... Uh, We'll, we'll run down on the on the Whig Party just a little bit. It's not really it's important, but it didn't really play much of a part. But I know I'll get asked about it. All right, so this goes into the War of eighteen twelve. So the Whigs and Democrats were basically basically tied, and neck and neck. They were buddy buddy. So the Whig party goes back to the 1812 the war of 1812 but it was officially formed in the 1830s by a union of derisive device factions that opposed the policies of president jackson and the democratic party many supported henry clay who was a proponent of internal uh, improvements protective tariffs and a national bank advocates of states rights challenged jackson's threat to use force to make south carolina an unpopular import tariff in 1832. Jackson, was, who was a very strong and assertive president, heavily wielded his power, frequently not only vetoing bills but also pushing his own agenda in Congress. His opponents called him King Andrew, and they began to call themselves Whigs, taking the name of the opposition party in Britain. And Whigs favored an active role for government, particularly in promoting internal improvement projects to take aid to transportation in public institutions like schools, mental hospitals, and penitentiaries. The Whigs also endorsed a strong national bank to boost investment and tariffs to protect industries. The Whig party really didn't last too long when they collapsed and basically disintegrated in the 1850s. And that's, a, that's something we'll get into later on in maybe another podcast down the road. So, whoa, we're at 26 minutes. So I hope you guys learned a little bit during this podcast. Maybe you can understand a little bit more about the parties, the political parties. Um, it's a little bit more complex than what I'm talking about because um, the parties have apparently flip-flopped a bunch of times throughout American history. I can't keep track of it, but hopefully maybe in the next podcast or another podcast down the road we can actually discuss... What, got, what happened and why they flipped. Or maybe if that's just a bunch of, uh, you know, balder, balderdash. So, hope somebody learned something today. Um, it's not as deep as some of the other topics I've covered, but still yet a good podcast, and I consider it a good one. So, thank everybody for listening. Have a great weekend.